Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1286 entitled I, Robert. And our podcast title is The Pods of Steel. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And here we are on Zero G powering into the... The quiet place, really. <laughs> yeah. Ex- except we're the unquiet ones. And thank you, Vivian, from uh, Room with a View there just before. Now, an author who I am particularly fond of his works, um, one of the, what I would call the four classic grandmasters of science fiction, there's Robert Heinlein. Arthur C. Clarke, Ray Bradbury, and Isaac Asimov. So during the lockdown, we thought we might have a look at a classic book of Asimov's. Um, And Megan's a fan of true crime. So I thought, well, you know, maybe the the Caves of Steel would be the go. So, Megan, proceed. Yes. So, yes, I have... Asimov's The Caves of Steel here, which is the first in a trilogy of novels. And Rob actually has shared his love of Asimov with me, knowing that I like detective stories and sci-fi. And he actually gave me this book. So I've read it and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And so it's my very first Asimov. Um, So I'll run through a little bit about it. And I'm surprised that I actually haven't read any of these to date because it very firmly falls in my wheelhouse. So you had me pegged pretty right, Rob. I did really enjoy the story. Um, So it's a science fiction detective story and it's that mixing of genres which I really enjoyed and I thought worked really well. And I'm wondering now, like, who else has done this? What other kinds of novels can I dig into? And I know there's probably some obvious examples, but I'm going to have to do a little digging and find some next suggestions. Um, But Asimov really did champion the idea that science fiction could be absorbed or part of any kind of genre or mixed with any genre. And I think he's pulled it off in this novel really, really well. So he was also a professor of biochemistry at Boston University and a prolific writer. So he wrote um, a lot of books, edited a lot of books and has written many, many letters and so on and so forth. Um, As I mentioned, this is the first book of his that I've read and The Caves of Steel was actually first published um, in Galaxy magazine. So it was a serial. So bit by bit they released it um, between October and December in 1953. So I'll I'll get back to that in a minute. But it was first published in its entirety as a book in 1954 in a nice hardcover, which, I mean, would be amazing to get your hands on. So I'm I've ho- obviously... I'm holding, up, I'm holding up my particular edition with a colour. Rob's got it. I, what is that on the cover? I can't even tell. Well, it's a, it's a, uh, a giant robot sort of creation um, by artist Christopher Foss, who's artwork in the 1970s and 80s, really seminal for science fiction. And this is my, my gosh, it's cool. almost it's almost mint, 1974 
copy of uh, oh. The Caves of Steel. It's really cool. I was looking online at all the different covers because I like looking up for older novels, um, all the different covers and art that they've had because I've got this sort of new release series that they're doing in this kind of purple and yellow style, which is really nice. But a lot of the covers Caves of Seal have had are pretty cool. Like they get some pretty good art on there. A lot of them have robots um, on them. Yeah, well, that checks out. That checks out. <laughs> um, so this is also in the trilogy. The second book is The Naked Sun, which I also have and will read. Um, and the third one would be The Robots of Dawn. But from what I understand, this is part of sort of a more, a bigger group of novels that he has that revolve a bit around robots and the idea of um, robots and kind of what that entails, which includes, of course, iRobot, which people might be familiar with from the film. You may also have um, seen The Bicentennial Man as well. That's a, oh. another one of the, the series in terms of films. Um, you will find that um, um, all of these robot stories have had various adaptations over the years, like um, uh, there was a, an episode of uh, The Outer Limits or The Twilight Zone. Oh, it doesn't matter which one, but that was uh, one of <laughs> iRobot. And Caves of Steel was an early television adaptation as well. Cause, and I think what's so great is because he has so many interesting ideas around robots and kind of how that would happen and what humans, how what robots would have that humans wouldn't and vice versa, um, that obviously all of his ideas are quite timeless. And I kind of like the idea that, um, yeah, they can, they're still relevant today. I think he was a bit ahead of his time in that regard. Um, his robots, so just around. Sorry, his robots are um, actually AI intelligent, like they're, they're like almost they're human level um, intelligence, but walking around. So none of your computers sitting somewhere. Yes, yeah. So they're all very um, designed. I mean, varying in in this book at least, varying in levels of um, how closely they replicate humans. Uh, so that it does vary to some that you can quite tell are robots, but they're all humanoid. So they're made in a humanoid style, and so on and so forth. So I'll run through a bit of the basic plot of the novel. So it kind of focuses on homicide detective Elijah Bailey and he has a partner for the novel called R. Daniil Olivor. So these are kind of our two protagonists and I don't think it's really a spoiler to say because it's it's on the back right here. He has to work with Olivor who is actually a robot himself. So Bailey, who's a homicide detective in On Earth, has to work to solve a murder. So this is how our story opens. We open with this murder and he has to work with this robot partner to solve the murder. So who has been murdered, you ask? So the mur- the murdered is Dr. Sarton. So he is uh, lives in Spacetown. So a bit more on that. Sort of the world building here is very interesting in that there's obviously an Earth still, there's a New York City, that is where we lay our scene, so in a future version of New York City. And there's this very finely imagined world that Asimov has that involves these spacer worlds and robots play a heavy role on these worlds and in- integrated in these in this life. And the sort of basic difference between the spacer worlds and the Earth is Earth is overpopulated, uh, it has all these different kinds of rules. Robots are kind of have a very specific place in society and there's a bit of, uh, what would you say, contra- uh, people have different ideas about how they feel about robots and some are against, some are 
four, I guess you could say. But in the spacer world, it's kind of everyone has a lot of money. Everybody has a lot of space. It's all very perfect. There's no disease. There's no nothing. It's it's very closely monitored in that they've created this kind of special society. And so that is where this murder takes place. And this fellow who is an ambassador there has been murdered. So robots and kind of the role of robots play a pretty heavy role in the book itself in the themes. And I like the fact there's the duality, there's the opposites as partners, kind of opposite, opposites attract thing with Bailey and Olivor. So Bailey's this cautious detective and Olivor is this inscrutable kind of fellow who, and just, you know, as the novel goes on, and it's a pretty pacey read, uh, just having them both kind of especially Bailey, he changes his ideas on things and he kind of goes down different paths with what he's investigating and until our eventual conclusion, which gave me the payoff that I really want from a good detective novel. So I was really, really pleased about that because I wasn't sure how that was going to go and I, it was just like a great episode of Murder, She Wrote. Um, <laughs> but with the, built within the story of, of not just kind of this, oh, someone's murdered and a robot and a human have to work together. Obviously, a lot of the talk is around robotics and what it is to be human and what what kind of the sociological elements of these different worlds and these different approaches and people's different attitudes towards robots and society. So, go yeah, Rob? I was just going to say that... Um, I think one of the things I like about this, the, obviously the dynamic between um, between the two detectives, uh, the, mm-hmm. the important thing about that I, I think is that um, the human one at least is just a guy. He, he's he's yeah. he's actually more lead, lead-footed than the robot is at a lot yeah. of times. He, he has trouble. He has a, a troubled relationship with his wife because he said mm-hmm. something that he shouldn't have, and you know it's, it's and it's haunted him since. It's haunted yeah. him since. It's very much like a. Um, it's that classic buddy buddy thing, isn't it? It's uh, it's alienation. It's uh, it's it's anything where you've got the two cops and one is slightly different from the other, or majorly different. Exactly. And that's what such great stories are built on: this idea of two different characters that have to work together, and how they, you know, like Watson and Holmes, and um, just watching the, those interactions, I think are great. I mean, I personally, if I had to work with Oliver, he was so frustrating and said such kind of things that seem obtuse but they're not. They're quite logical and, you know, just kind of those stock standard responses of, well, that wouldn't happen because that wouldn't make sense. It's like, oh, robot partner, you're being so frustrating. It's so Kirk, I definitely Kirk and felt Spock. that. Kirk and Spock. It is, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, um, and, I mean, I thought that was so – I obviously I knew around when this book had been written but, honestly – I think that it's written in such a way and the ideas are so still relevant and contemporary and well done that I think it's really cool. Like it's very accessible still. I think it's it's aged really well, if you could say that. I mean it was written like almost 70 years ago, but the ideas in it are still really relevant. And, yeah, it was just a really engaging read. It sort of raised some ideas that you could engage with. But if you wanted to just be there for the detective story part of it, you could do that as well. And, you know, there's the little bits and pieces dropped in, which I always like about 
I think about future worlds and people doing this world building. And I like when they put some thought into how do people eat in this world? How do people bathe in this world? How do they live? What's their everyday life like? But they don't hammer the point. And I think it was a nice mixture of he's obviously thought about all of this and it is incorporated in the story because it's pretty relevant to draw the difference between what earth life is like and what spacer life is like. But he didn't hammer the point like, you know, describing in intricate detail every single element of this future world. It was just enough that you get an idea of what it's like and then on with the story. So, Asimov yeah, was very, 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 very careful to make sure that um, – uh, he he wrote in a way that wouldn't date too much, so although and he's they're, done they're, it well, yeah, there are certain things that, that 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 will stand out, and quite often it's the absence of things. But then every you know, like the absence of something like a mobile phone, uh, that kind of mm. thing. You know, mm. they'll have a they'll have a communicator or, or some kind of thing like that. He's very generic, so it does yeah. it does yeah. work quite well that aspect. And as you were saying before, this is part of his massive future history. A lot of the golden age mm. science fiction authors wrote um, diverse sort of streams at first as they were starting out. And later on, as they got older and more experienced and the, and the demand for their work was more and had grown, they would bring those stories together in a future history. And so he did, as mm. you were saying, bring together the Robots series uh, and the Foundation series. And these all come together, ah. not necessarily successfully, but and after he died, um, other writers took up those universes. So there's it's like uh, Frank Herbert and his son with the Dune books. There's so many other elements that spin off to greater or lesser yeah. successful degrees. And you'll notice that there are no aliens in these stories either. No, no. It's I mean I think and that's a very I like that in that it doesn't muddy the waters, although it does obviously have that humans is the centre of the universe kind of thing. But I guess that what we're unpacking here is how we would expand what that would look like, colonisation and the role of non-human, non-human occupants, mm. how that would look. And I like that that's the focus. And especially because at the end of the day, it's meant to be a detective story. It's meant to be a, here's our situation, here's our murder, here are our characters let's get to why it happened, what happened. And mm. part, obviously part of that layer is unpacking the science fiction themes, but I like that it didn't stray too much into um, let's, let's look at all these other things. And I guess that's what his other novels are for, exploring different elements of what that world's like mm. I, I'd in like general. To, I'd like to play a track here, The Caves of Steel, uh, by a guy mm. called John Baker, and it's from the John Baker tapes. So here we go with The Caves of Steel. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Z's on Zero G. Triple R. Triple R. We had John Baker with the John Baker tapes, and that was the uh, Caves of Steel. I forgot the title of the book yeah. there. <laughs> Rob Jan. Quite a nice little ditty, that one. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Rob Jan talking to Megan McHugh here on Zero G on Free Triple R. FM. Yeah, the, you'll find that was a very futuristic sort of feeling from, you know, retro-futurism, that one, um, which is mm -hmm. really strange because, as you were saying, The Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov, which is the book we're talking about, it's it's like 70 years ago. It, exactly. <laughs> and yet, like, I, I mean, I could have picked this up and if I – and gone, oh, yeah, someone might have written this now. 
which just kind of goes to show that if he's got ideas and things that are still relevant that people might write about now, I mean, it's, yeah, it's incredible. So highly recommend checking that out if you like detective stories, if you like science fiction. I think even if you only like one of those things, give it a shot because it's, I think it weaves it quite well. And it's, it's not very long. Like I think it, it's a good length for what it is. I'm definitely interested in the other two books. So it's a trilogy with the same characters. Oh, what's the, what's the third si- one again? Uh, Dawn. I've got it written here. Uh, the Robots of Dawn. Oh, yes, of course. So I think um, I'll definitely be reading those because I really liked this and – I think also, yeah, Rob, so do you know of many what kinds of other books that have a similar kind of crossover between like a crime slash sci-fi? I'm sure there's plenty. Oh, hell yeah, yeah. Arthur C. Clarke also did um, a bunch of short stories as well. Mm. I think the Tales from the White Heart. Uh, Asimov himself has a a whole bunch of um, short story books. Uh, I'm just trying uh, casting around for a title. Tales of the Black Widowers which is um, oh. a bunch of short stories, uh, crime-related in science fiction. You'll also find that um, pretty much all of Asimov's robot books feature a scientific detection element in them. Mm. So for the scientific process, even if there hasn't actually been a crime committed, that was just the way okay. his brain worked, his positronic yep, brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think... You'll, you'll also you find the uh, the Caves of Steel, the title, because it's the book is set largely in a, um, a sort of a, a mega city, you know, a, mm, mo- a, yeah. a monumental metropolis. and The future New York. Yes. And Asimov took that idea and expanded it in the Foundation series with a city-wide, uh, a planet-wide city called Trantor. Um, Mm -hmm. which was the imperial capital. And that was the model for any number of planet-sized cities in science fiction, Uh, from Mm. Star Wars, uh, what's the one in that, uh, Coruscant, and eventually sent up in Harry Harrison's novel, Build the Galactic Hero, where the the implications of having a a world-girding city is uh, fully realised, how stupid it would actually Mm -hmm. be and how environmentally (laughs) insane... Um, so, yeah, there's so many things in this that's, that's been out into uh, futurism. Obviously, tremendously influential, this one book. Um, Absolutely. And I of can course, see that, yeah. Of course, Asimov's Free Laws of Robotics. Yes, exactly. Mm. And I think that having – I mean, yeah, he's just obviously thought this through so well and I think those things – I don't know, he's just obviously very clever. <laughs> <laughs> was he, very clever. Was. I mean, understatement of the year. Megan thinks Asimov is really clever. <laughs> I was I was also surprised, not surprised, because I'd for some reason always thought his work was maybe a bit inaccessible um, or had him in a sort of a camp that you, it was quite, I mean, I can't think of a word more than inaccessible because I don't want to say something like highbrow because that's not what I mean. I guess I just wasn't sure about, well, I mean, I'd never read it, but it was much more engaging and straight away I could see kind of it was plot driven for some reason I I guess I thought it would just be a book full of scientific theories and speculation and very dense but I don't know why where I would have got that even those books even his science books and he has he wrote many of them um, you know, mm, like mm. <laughs> his jokes that there, there, there was like Asimov's Guide to the Bible, Asimov's Guide to Physics, you know, and it was yep. joked that there would be like Asimov's Guide to practically everything. 
Um, you know, yep, so yep. even those books are very, very accessible. Um, he yeah. wrote a lot of columns for different science fiction magazines. And so he got a very um, almost an, an avuncular sort of um, uh, way of writing. You, you felt very comforted in the writing. It's You can just jump into it. There's no, there's mm. no language barrier. Um, he's, he's not a man for purple prose. Um, nah. So you know, if you want, not, if you want something more lyrical, go and read the highly esteemed Ray Bradbury's work. Who I, I mean, I really love Bradbury as well. I'll, I will just—I've got the three laws of robotics here, so I thought we'd just go through those because I thought that would be kind of fun. So can I, can I try and guess them? Because I haven't. Please. So, yeah. So, so these are Asimov's three laws of robotics. Um. I won't be able to quote them verbatim because my memory oh, tapes no, that's fine. are a bit the, the, rusty. The but the first law is that uh, no rom- uh, robot shall harm a human. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yep. And the so second, I'll read out that a robot may not injure a human being or, through an action, allow a human being to come to harm. So number two. Ah, no, that was my second one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> she'll, sorry, she'll, sorry. She'll, she'll not let let a human being come to harm. Um. I think the third one, to jump to the third one, is that a robot mm. uh, can protect itself providing it doesn't conflict with the first and second laws. Now, yep, but the second, law, the second law escapes me. So the second law is a robot must obey the orders given by a human being except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And the third one is robot must protect its own existence. So you got that one, as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. So it's, it's been simple, a, clear, make total sense though. No, none of those laws function in my own positronic brain, of course. I had them taken out. <laughs> But but that, that just those three laws um, have featured so much. Other people use those in their in their stories. Mm. Uh, mm. But it's a total assumption. They'd only yes. be there if you program them in there, and uh, if you you oh, know you can see that we don't program that sort of thing into into our robots. We're trying with um, with uh, electric cars and uh, you know self driving cars and so on. It's very very difficult. Well, that, and that's the whole debate, which I'm very interested in, which is a topic for another time, is AI and the ethics of AI. And at the end of the day, humans are the ones programming. So, you know, it's that car dilemma of, you know, should it swerve to hit one person or keep going and hit five? Um, that idea, that at the end of the day, um, yeah, the, the questions around ethics and, and those decisions is so blurry and, and interesting and will forever be... Uh, ongoing questions that I think are becoming more and more important as AI and that kind of thing keeps pushing forward. Um, But, yes, so we were just discussing Asimov's The Caves of Steel. Thank you for sharing that one with me, Rob. I will definitely be reading the next one, which is The Naked Sun. Who's the publisher of Um, that edition? So this edition that I've got here is it's a and it's they've re, they've republished a bunch of his stuff in this same kind of cover style, so you can collect them all. Sorry, which Megan, I love a you, good dro- you dropped all. out a second, and we didn't get the publisher. Oh, it's a Harper Collins, yeah. And they've um, republished a whole bunch of his novels in paperback with this special sort of matching collected like collect them all kind of cover. So I would highly recommend checking that out. I think I'm going to try to start getting some more of his stuff with this cover style. And Rob sniffing his own copy. Yeah, my my nineteen seventy four <laughs> Panther science fiction copy with the Chris Foss uh, cover, glorious Chris Foss cover. 
<laughs> I actually think I've seen a lot of um, these kinds of sites. Like I think have all been republished lately. Like Le Guin is there's she has a whole range that they've republished and all kinds of things. So Caves of Steel, Asimov, recommend. Mm. Really liked it. Well, we'll go to a track now called uh, iRobot. Now this is um, uh, from the Alan Parsons Project which is a, a British rock band who around between 75, 1990, uh, and named after one of the core band members, Alan Parsons. Uh, Eric Wolfson was the other core band member who sort of stuck with it for quite some time. This is their second studio album, uh, and they released it in 1977. And they're obviously um, drawing from uh, Asimov's robot books, um, and having a lot of uh, discussion about philosophical themes um, regarding AI. So go back to 1977 for this one, only three years after the uh, the copy of the book that I had there. And again, so this is like, this is for us, this is retro-futurism, but this is how they were projecting themselves into the future back in the 1970s. So Alan Parsons' Project I Robots. Hello, I'm Ray Harryhausen, animation pioneer. You're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. We had a blast from the 1970s there, mid-70s to be mm. precise. Uh, Alan Parsons' project with iRobot. <laughs> uh, so now, retro-futurism. <laughs> But I can I can laugh at that. But um, back in the seventies, I can assure you that felt dead futuristic. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think all this kind of futuristic content I've been doing at the moment has got me in the vibe to just seek out more. So I've read this. We did Providence last week. I watched that show Devs, which is sort of a whole bunch of ideas and themes. And now I'm just really itching for more kind of of that sci-fi visceral brain content so i'm in i'm in a zone i'm in a zone we've we've uh neuro-linguistically programmed you mm, exactly it's worked <laughs> our, our our cunning but that does not no point um it doesn't our mind control it's no point us mind controlling each other it's all the people exactly. out there <laughs> well that's why we have this show that's right okay so um, I have been mind controlled by my partner Gail, who uh, has um, uh, not forced, <laughs> but uh, suggested at one stage that we catch up with Chris Evans in his new movie, The Red Sea Diving mm. Resort, which I did, which we did. And that's on Netflix? It is on Netflix. And. Um, it's a, a 2019 spy thriller film written and directed by Gideon Raff, who's um, an Israeli film and TV director, screenwriter and writer. He did uh, a series called Prisoner, uh, Prisoners of War and a Netflix mm-hmm. miniseries, The Spy. So this is a Chris Evans vehicle. Um, we know him, of course, as the former Captain America. Captain America. Steve Rogers. <laughs> Although that doesn't necessarily stop until a certain point, like four or five years in the future from last year, when he stops being Captain America, when you think about it. Cause of that's the whole, true. Very true. Yeah. the whole. Oh, that time jump. Still, I'm still trying to work all that out in the head. But yes, <laughs> true. Very true. <laughs> it's just the hope that I hold out to say that Tony Stark is still alive for another 
few years. Oh, there's a spoiler. <laughs> oh, I think, oh, gosh, if you're caring about that now, you're way behind the eight ball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you probably didn't care about it to start with. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, the film is, um, it is actually a historical film. So we're mm-hmm. talking about the uh, the late 70s, um, 80s. And so are we in based on a true story territory then? Absolutely. And it was a true story I'd never heard about before. Um, there, was, there was a population of, um, of refugees, um, originally Ethiopians, who were in um, um, camps in the Sudan uh, before mm-hmm. the Sudan was broken up into two countries, north and south. Um, mm-hmm. And these, uh, these uh, refugees, a large number of them were of the Jewish persuasion. So mm-hmm. this is a, f- a fairly complicated sort of thing that goes back through history, and I'm not going to unpack that right now. Uh, sure. Suffice to say that um, uh, Israel back then um, determined that they had a responsibility to rescue these people because they were, they were um, uh, well, actually, I feel like Israel was a little bit more humanitarian back then. I could be wrong. <laughs> Uh, you know, I do know one thing that anybody who says that they fully understand Middle Eastern ethics, morals and politics either A, does not live there or B, doesn't really understand them because they said that they understood them. <laughs> and exactly. That, and that is my that is my persona <laughs> actually there. But this film is um, it's kind of based around uh, what they called Operation Moses and Operation Joshua in 1984 and 1985, in which the Israeli Secret Service, Mossad, um, they managed to uh, evacuate um, these uh, refugees to Israel. Uh, quite a few of them, lots, thousands and thousands. Now, these were two separate op- okay. operations. This, this film is a fictional film inspired by those events, so they kind of munge some of those things together. Sure. And yep, yep. essentially, uh, Chris Evans' character, he's a Mossad agent, comes up with the idea that we need to do this under the noses of everybody. So there's this holiday camp on the Red Sea coast of Sudan. Uh, it's um, Arus village. And so he said, why don't, we, why don't we buy this from the government there or lease it and, um, and run it as a resort and we'll use it as a cover because it's by the sea. When we get the refugees there... We can then uh, have Israeli warships come and pick them up, or, uh, or sorry, not a warship. And there we get our our name. I see yeah. Red Sea Diving Resort is the name of the film. Yeah. Okay, all right, I'm with you now. Yeah, so it's it's actually a, it's actually a great concept. Um, you wouldn't be too go too far astray if you think of the uh, of Argo, that film where they uh, they got yeah. the American embassy staff out of Iran, uh, or some of them at least, using um, a, co- a film crew that was. Pretending to be making a science fiction film. Yes. So straight. I will say I did enjoy Argo. <laughs> so straight. Yeah, I love that. So straight away, this is a caper film. Okay. Yep. And if they'd stuck with that, and actually maybe cleaved a little bit closer to the actual historical events, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and more importantly, I felt lent into the eighties vibe more than they did. I mean, yeah, they okay. did. Yep. They did that standard sort of thing where you'd have a desk with uh, an 80s computer, a, a, a coloured landline phone, you know, a red phone or a green phone, um, mm-hmm. uh, a calculator that took up the same size as an iPad would but chunky, 
You know, that kind yep. of they, they, and, and sure. calendars on the wall. Okay, they did that. That's basic. But yep. unfortunately, I don't feel like – and they did some music too. But with all of that, sure. it didn't really get that sort of slightly, slightly whimsical, slightly wacky idea behind all of this. And then they made the mistake during the end credits of playing footage from the actual uh, time from that resort. Okay. And they had still I usually f- like when they do that. They did that, but it, it showed you how much better the film could have been. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, that said, it's still a quite watchable film. Um, you it's know, watchable. it just felt. Oh, dear. It just felt. <sighs> A little dated in its um, in its ethics and morals, and and mm. and especially that. Look, there's this is a really interesting argument that I, I had with myself about this, um, the white savior argument. Okay, mm. so the the because uh, uh, Chris Evans' character is an an, an American Israeli, so um, right. it felt very much like that. And the way to, okay. to the way to get out of that often is to have more actual um, characters who are not white people in the film. So they could have used, <laughs> yep. uh, you know, and they had the Ethiopian refugees there. They actually had some some characters in there who were pretty major in the story, but they kept benching them. Okay. Yeah. So we're really, it's more, it becomes problematic when we're honing in on Chris Evans as this star player, which I get that you do for movies, but it makes it a bit problematic because it makes it, it really plays into this white savior kind of stereotype rather than it being a character piece, say, or something that's kind of trying to lean a bit more historical and lived experience. It kind of trying to mix two things and becomes a bit problematic in the process is what I'm getting from you. Yeah. And and at the same time, to be entirely, to be fair as well, it actually is a white saviour story. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I feel a bit uh, torn. So I, I would have liked to have seen more of the uh, the other actors in there. And again, that said, um, there's an actor called Chris Chalk who plays... Um, uh, a Sudanese um, soldier, uh, a colonel, and he's kind of the ostensible villain in this story. And he's actually they actually mm-hmm. play him extremely villainous um, with this okay. weird, weird little um, character quirk. He likes to play a double-necked bass and strum it <laughs> <laughs> and strum it with a bullet casing. But oh my god! You only see that towards the end of the film, and it's like, what am I going? Huh? <laughs> Um, Exaggerated eye roll from me. <laughs> look, I've never seen Chris Evans turn in a really bad performance yet in anything that he's done. That said, I haven't seen. Have you seen Fantastic Four? <laughs> look, I have. Um, he's supposed to be hot headed in that, quite literally. Sure. I still would like to see Johnny Storm and Captain America meet in the MCU. <laughs> <laughs> I know who'd win there. But yeah, sorry, go on. Um, you... Look, we love Chris in Knives Out. Mm. Um, and and he's like, oh yeah, I he, want to rewatch that. He he tends to take um um uh, my partner Gail said he does seem to like films where he's playing characters helping people. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Which is I, good. I think that said, he I think he has a good sense of humor about it too, and that he he does also take roles where he's playing off that all American vibe, especially since um 
Captain America, I think his Knives Out character, without spoiling anything, I think he deliberately wanted to do something that was a bit different. So I've I've always liked him ever since he was in Not Another Teen Movie. <laughs> his his character um, uh, Ari Levinson um, likes to do exercises, uh, do push ups and pull ups whenever he can. Um, oh, so, I'm sure that yeah, very so, clever working that into the story. <laughs> well, for all I, it actually sounds like the kind of detail that might be true, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, uh, you know, apart from that, um, he does get his shirt off a lot because it's a diving resort, and there is one one exceptionally brief nude scene. <laughs> so I, I will note that down for uh, connoisseurs of Chris Evans. Um, What's your overall? Feeling on the piece, I would I, I would have loved to have seen more of the um, the Ethiopian refugees in this film. Uh, Michael mm. K. Williams is particularly um, stand out as uh, Kabede. Um, we've seen him before in The Wire and Boardwalk Empire. Uh, mm. He has a gravity that really needed to uh, to have more time on screen, and he was the mm. perfect mm. choice. The characters there just. Bring him into the foreground, not not in that sort of yeah. token way to represent his tribe, but he actually had a lot of important parts in the film and they just use him as a bookend, mm. essentially. Yeah. Include him in the story. Don't just trot him out when it's, you know, at the, yeah, the start and the end. You may also recognise Hayley Bennett in here playing uh, another agent um, American actress and singer. I uh, saw her in um, The Girl on the Train and um, The Magnificent Seven remake. Also The Hole <laughs> as well. Um, she oh. she gets to be the obligatory butt kicking chick agent in this. Uh, okay, cool. We also have, and this is this this made me laugh. Ben Kingsley uh, playing oh, playing really? Chris Evans' Mossad handler. And okay, well that's a good role for him. Okay, this, yep. but but it's Chris Evans, Captain America, and Ben Kingsley, the Mandarin. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Trevor Slattery. I don't know. Um, but he's all, he just walks on and he owns the screen whenever he does it. Yeah, of course. Um, of course he does. He does, yeah. Um, the score I did actually like, um, it's got some very John Carpenter-like moments in the action sequences that is very 80s. There's a really bad <laughs> scene in a prison cell where one of the agents starts spilling his guts. And literally? You uh, no, no, not, no, not oh. literally. But he starts talking about the mission and stuff and... And the Chris Evans character does um, he, he does uh, take him to task for that because it's not sure. the sort of thing you should be doing. But it just felt like bad writing. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Like they're trotting out a bit of exposition or something. Yeah. So, look, this is a film for Chris Evans completists to watch. Uh, and yeah. I tell you what, whenever you do a historical film like this, it always inspires you to go and find out more. Yes, yeah. And this one so does. That can only be a good thing. Yeah, it is actually a fascinating story. I'd never heard of it before, and it, mm-hmm. you know, and you can go off and um, and research it. I go and Google it on Wikipedia or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And there are books about it, and uh, and audio books and so on. So it actually it actually bears closer investigation, and I may actually do that myself. Um, it reminded nice. me of a movie called Victory at, at Entebbe, which is uh, okay. a, another daring Israeli commando mission. Um, but this mm-hmm. one, this mm-hmm. one, I don't think landed quite so well. But it's on Netflix. Sure. It's called the Red Sea Diving Resort. Now, okay. I, I do have a, a, a track from the soundtrack, um, 
And this is by, uh, and I apologise if I don't get this one right in terms of non-mangulating the uh, pronunciation. It's by Idan Rachel, uh, who's an Israeli singer, songwriter and musician known for the Idan Rachel project, sort of like the Alan Parsons project, and um, actually has a very fascinating um, uh, backstory for this particular uh, singer, songwriter, and is very well known for um, Middle Eastern fusion music. So including electronics, uh, traditional Hebrew texts, Arab and Ethiopian music. So I kind of like this actual track. It's called, uh, (laughs) is he going to try this one? Yes, he is. Uh, But really it just means out of the depths. And of course, you know, this is a diving school connection. This is Alistair Reynolds, creator of the Revelation Space Series. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G on 3 Triple R FM. Fasten your safety belts. You're in for a bumpy ride. Yeah, you are indeed, but that part of the ride is over now. As we come up to 2 o'clock, <laughs> Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour and uh, Rob Jan and Megan McHugh signing off for today. Thanks, Megan. It's no worries. Thank you, Rob. That went quickly. Mm. Until... Next week, live long, prosper, and make sure you keep those hands washed. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.